Bibles to uh, the book of Proverbs. bounce around a little bit. I, I'll read all the scriptures first and then I'll just preach from them. Oh, that helps. The first one will be Proverbs 17.10. Okay. A rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. Proverbs 6. 23. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful or profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 29.1 He who often is reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will certainly be broken beyond healing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word like always, God. It truly is a teaching, and this truly is a lamp. It's truly encouraging. It's truly searching, Father God. And oh God, how desperately in need we are of it. We are like strangers and alien in this world. Please, as the psalmist says, do not take your word away from us, God. Where would we go for you and you alone have the words of life? Father, open up our hearts. Open it up. Let us receive the teaching. Let us receive understanding. Let us search for it as a man would search for fine gold and silver, Father. Let us treasure it and hide it in our hearts and wear it upon our necks, for it will be a guide for us, Father God. It will be a teacher. It will protect us from going wayward, Father God. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, Last week we spoke about the grace of affliction. And that's to bring back the wayward child of God, the child that's lost their step. They've look to the left instead of walking to the right. And God, over usually many years, sends correction or reproof time and time again to draw back a child of God from the road of death, really what it is. And when a child of God does not heed over and over and over again the correction and instruction and the people God sends in their path, parents and pastors and friends and etc. and etc., eventually God, because of his deep, deep covenant love he has with his people will send affliction to bring back the wayward. And uh, this is the testimony of not just the Old and the New Testament, but many, many a Christian. And I can see it in my own life at times. There's a sphere, there's a spectrum to affliction in our life. And uh, it doesn't have to be severe to the point of near-death experience, but God will use a near-death experience to bring back his people. And sometimes there are more minor afflictions that never make it outside your own heart. It's just something you acknowledge in your own life and say, no, I think this is the Lord doing something in my life. Today we want to speak about correction and the, and the grace of correction and how 
God corrects us in our walk. And of course he corrects us. We're sinners. We're, we come out of darkness and we're going to live in the light now. We're going to live under the fear of the Lord and love the Lord our God with all our heart, strength, soul, our mind. We're going to live as living sacrifices. Uh, when you were born again, did you know how to do that? Of course not. We're still like Israel. We want to go back to Egypt most of the time of our Christian life. We want to go back and eat the good stuff of Egypt. We don't want to be in the wilderness. We don't want to be tested by the Lord and so on and so forth. And the rest assured that the Christian life is a painful life at times. That God starts to do a deeper work surgically within our hearts. And we try to do anything to find a little anesthesia. We don't want to be dealt so harshly with God. But always remember something. Harsh outside of God is a hard word. Harsh inside of God is a wonderful, freeing, liberating, comforting, assuring word. Because the good God is acting with a heavy hand on his people. But I do want to speak about this, what we spoke uh, uh, in the... I'm using Proverbs to speak about the grace of correction, how God comes into our life often to correct us. That's everybody. It's, 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 if you are a Christian, God is coming into your life just like uh, the furnace is for gold and the crucible is for silver. The Lord tests the hearts of his people. He disciplines all those he loves. Uh, before I get into the, into the teaching, I, I want to give a little minor introduction into the book of Proverbs. It's important. I want to read it out of chapter 4, if you don't mind, chapter 4. For some reason I don't have it here. I have to pull it up. Chapter 4, verses 1 to 9, I believe it is. Okay. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive, that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place your head a grateful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. When you read much of Proverbs, it comes from a parental exhortation tone. It's it's a parent correcting and warning a child. It's, it's a parent that has matured in life. This is not a 20-year-old parent. This is a parent that's seasoned under the covenant of grace through the law of Moses. These are two parents that know the love of God, that have followed God, who, who, who know that the teachings are life. And they're realizing that their young children, maybe 11, 12, 13 years old, are turning into young adults and any loving parent will be genuinely concerned with the quality of their child's life and their child's future. And that parent would know that it's within the teaching, it's within the commandment that life is truly found. And here's a parent looking from their high position in life of living under the great covenant love of God, being tutored, understand this, by the law found in Deuteronomy and the law found in Leviticus in the first five books of the Pentateuch. And they're writing, they're coming from a parent that has digested deeply within their soul 
the value and the power of the word of God as Deuteronomy 6, 7 teaches. Teach your children to obey all that I command. Write it on your hands. Write it on your foreheads. Write it on your doorposts. Don't go anywhere, Deuteronomy teaches, where the law of God is not exposed clearly to their minds and to their hearts. Now we have parents that have lived under this magnificent, life-giving, power, changing word of God, and now they are encouraging their own children, keep the commandment. Bind it to your heart. Let it not drift far from you. And he personifies it as she will protect you. In the book of Proverbs, Wisdom is often personified as a woman. Lady wisdom. So is foolishness. Lady folly. And we see this parental exhortation with this tone of, of child, I know what's out in this world. How many parents here have had this talk with their son and their daughter that are turning age and and you see something happening. They're, they're not playing with cowboys and Indians anymore. And the girls aren't playing with dolls. They're not interested in a dollhouse anymore. And you say to yourself, my child is grown up. This is the, that awkward conversation parents have to have with their children. And it shouldn't be awkward. It should be liberating and life-giving. It should be uh, empowerment. Empowering the child to be prepared for the life that lies ahead. To secure the good road. This is what the book of Proverbs is doing. Matter of fact, Solomon's writing most of the Proverbs and he's writing it because he wants to speak to the youth of Israel. And guess how he chose to speak to the youth of Israel? Speak to their parents. And let their parents educate the children at home. There were no schools in Israel. You learned at home. And often, if not most of the time, it was the mother that was doing the educating at home because the father was working, tilling the land. Mothers and grandmothers would stay home. Maybe with grandparents, as we see that we just read in Proverbs 4, that was coming from a, a, a grandparent point of view also. And they're teaching their child morals and ethics. To be careful when you go out into this world. Solomon wants the children to do well. If this nation only knew how to treat, treat the children well, they would educate the parents. It's the parents' job. The church can only do so much in the education and development morally, ethically, and spiritually of a child. It really comes from the home. There was a time, at least growing up in my life, parochial school, they taught some sort of morality and ethics. I hear that's a far cry from the school system today. Where God's not allowed, never to mind, to speak any kind of absolute truth in moral teachings. The school system of America do wonders by teaching the book of Proverbs alone. The book of Proverbs gives color. It gives practical understanding of what it means to be fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of knowledge. 
But how does that work out? Maybe a little small detail of your life. Well, if you read the book of Proverbs, you'll see how it minutely works within every small area of our life. What does it mean to fear the Lord? In Israel, 3,500 years ago, if you read the book of Proverbs, you'll find out a lot on how to do that. When you read the Old Testament, many times you're reading historical narratives and it really don't enter into a slice out of a day in the life of Israel. You don't get that from the Old Testament. You're usually reading, and just a couple of chapters could span many decades in David's life or Saul's life or Israel's life. It's when you go into Proverbs and the Psalms and Ecclesiastes and, and, and parts of Job and you get this wisdom literature and you study and you realize this is what was going on on a 24-hour day-to-day basis within Israel. Book of Proverbs teach much about correction. And that it's wise to receive correction. A wise man says first, I need to be corrected. That might be the wisest statement any man could say. That might be a true characteristic and defining character of someone who's wise. The wise learn and become still wiser, Proverbs says. A man or woman should recognize that I need education in morals and ethics. I need to understand what the will of God is. I come as a sinner. I come out of darkness. I come out of Egypt. I come out of Corinth. I come out of Bay Ridge. Teach me how to live for the Lord. I need to be corrected. By all means, teach me how to love. I'm a loveless human being. I I came out of lovelessness. I was never loved. I never loved. And now you're talking to me about love and good works. Teach me. Correct me. Should be the cry of every Christian's heart. Tonight we're going to speak about the grace of correction and rebuke. The main point of tonight's lesson is that Christians cultivate, and please hear this, that all of us cultivate an inner disposition of openness to God correcting us at all times. Of God correcting something in us at any time, through any circumstance, from any person. Very important. This is not an impossibility. God's Spirit clearly teaches us that God's going to come and make us do His law. He's going to be careful that we obey God. The Holy Spirit comes and softens our heart. Makes it pliable. Makes it flexible. Makes it changeable. So we can receive. He gives us ears to hear. That comes with the new birth. Scripture constantly warns against a contentious and uncharitable disposition. A defensive and argumentative person makes true, profitable, long-lasting friendships almost impossible at times. And at best, painful. It's hard. It's hard. It's hard work. We don't want to hear the wounds of a friend. They can be trusted. And God wants to speak to us about something about ourselves. We all have blind spots. We all have weaknesses. God uses many different approaches. We'll look at some of them tonight, probably not all of them, and how he accomplishes this work of grace. It's not just a pulpit. Many times it comes through informal correction, informal times, just just siblings and, and, and spouses and friends and bosses and co-workers, neighbors and Christians and even strangers sometimes. God uses to, to bring something to our attention 
Uh, it could be criticism, constructive criticism. And no matter, and listen, no matter how mean-spirited or spiteful the agent God is using at the time. Sometimes God's getting our attention, not in such a nice way. Sometimes it's very painful. Sometimes people are saying harsh things in a harsh way that carry an element of truth about us. Where are we at those times? Do we have ears to hear? Personally, for me, I just say, Lord, if any time someone is bringing something negative to my ears about myself, all I say is, God, are you speaking? That is my first thought. It's my first thought. Because I know I need to hear from God. I'm not just a pastor. I'm a husband. And not just a husband. I'm a friend. I'm a brother in Christ. I'm a neighbor. I'm also fallen. I'm also weak. And I'm also blind. I need God to come into my life and correct me. I never know when that's going to happen. Often God uses strangers. Often God uses people just at, in the gym or in any context whatsoever. You never know when God's going to show up. And how can you tell? If something hurts. If someone's saying something that hurts, we take a step back and say, Lord, are you teaching me something about myself? We need to be prudent. Not to be reactionary. We need to do what James says. Be slow to speak and quick to listen. Discipline is painful. Please understand that. It's interesting with this proverb and when he says that a hundred blows won't change a fool but one rebuke can change a wise man. And it's interesting. This is why. Because you can give a hundred blows to a fool but understand something. We all played a fool. I'll give you the difference between Israel and us today. It's a major difference. Uh, I'll explain that in a moment. But understand something. What's more painful? A hundred blows on the back? Or constructive criticism that's true and hurtful? What lasts longer? A pain about who we are really and our personality and our disposition and what we are? What we're still lacking in grace? That lasts a long time. Criticism has a, a much greater impact on our life than a hundred blows can have on our, on our backs at times. A hundred blows hurts, but it never teaches. Criticism, on the other hand, lives inside our heart. Criticism, constructive, and I say constructive because it's not always loving. Sometimes God uses people that aren't so loving, but they're giving us a truth and God's behind it. It's searching. Criticism, good criticism from God is searching. It's a searching ministry. It enters in and it searches out. It's on a search and destroy mission for the blind spots in our life. Give me a couple of punches. I can get over that. What was that old saying? Sticks and stones can break my bones. But man, words are very painful. Our job as Christians is really to develop and cultivate to recognize first that we need to be receiving if God's teaching us something. And we have to realize he's always teaching us something. We all need God's correction on our life. When we come, we come fully accepted on the merits of Jesus Christ. Then God comes into our life and he starts to change us. We're not saved because we're changed. He changes us because we're saved. Psalm 
Some criticism is quickly received and acted on in our lives. Sometimes it takes many years to sink in and to make that deep impression. Our motive for such an approach to life is simply this, to be pleasing to God and submitting to his kingship and rule in our life. That's what we're doing. God is searching the deep things in our heart at all times. Understand something. The correct sin is not that hard or difficult. Correcting sin is, well, you know, this is easy black and white. I can open up the scriptures to you and say, well, you know, how can you justify this behavior? It's, it's sin. Correcting personalities or something different. That's very, very painful. And then God wants to correct parts of our personality because it's not lining up to the law of love. We need to be open to correction. And as, uh, as a pastor, as your pastor, I want to encourage you to, where are we in the receiving of correction? Are we the defensive type? Are we argumentative? Are we, you know, we're going to put up our dukes, you know, am I going to hear everything with a, a, a negative connotation to it? Or can I step back? And, and there was a time it would have been a negative connotation to me. But now, because I know I'm a born-again believer in God, everything that comes my way is sent by God. So I know God only has my good in. Where are we? Proverbs main emphasis, as I mentioned already, is a practical expression to that wonderful truth that fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You know what the rest of that proverb says? Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The truth of the matter is, we can be saved and still be foolish. There are other areas in my life I can be extremely wise. In other areas I can be extremely foolish. This is not either or. It's both of them, most of the time, in all of us, to some degree. To give this practical expression in everyday life, in work, with money, education, sex, marriage, friends, enemies, leaders, preparation for the future, the book of Proverbs really, really nails down every small detail of living life in this world. How important this is. There are different types of confession, as I already said. There's a formal correction. We see that in, in, uh, in David's life when the prophet Nathan had to correct him over his sin with Bathsheba and, and the murder of her husband, that God actually spoke to Nathan the prophet and said, I'm sending you, formal, I am sending you to speak to David. It's different with Peter. There was correction of inner attitudes of pride to Peter. We all remember when Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be handed over to the Pharisees and the leaders and the scribes and they're going to uh, kill the Son of Man but on the third day he's going to raise again and, and, and Peter said, no way! No way! And Jesus said, everybody's going to desert me. And Jesus said, Peter said, I'll never desert you. They might. But not me. And we know the rest of it. Before the rooster would crow three times, 
Peter would be corrected. Peter at Antioch was an informal correction at a church service where he played the hypocrite. The fear of man got him. We'll speak about that later. There's also a correction of personality. John and James will call him down fire <laughs> against the village of Samaria. And Jesus says, we don't do that around here. You don't know what spirit you are of. This correction of doctrine. A lot of pastors don't want to hear that. There was a man named Apollos who was mighty in the scriptures, refuting mightily the Jews about Christ from the scriptures, it says. But he didn't understand grace totally. And just two lay people, husband and wife by the name of Aquila and Priscilla, humbly took him to the side and spoke to him about grace in Christ. And he humbly received. So many people, so many church leaders need to be open to correction of theology and doctrine. But few are. But we all do, all of us to some degree need to have correction theologically because we come, we're pagans. Don't you understand? We're all pagan in all. We want to make God who we want God to be. We want to go through life and find a nice, comfortable understanding of who God is and, and plant there. Like, and like Peter and John wanted to build this tabernacle over here. So let's just, let's just stay here. Don't give me anything that's uncomfortable. I, I can't hear the uncomfortable teaching. No, that's not, that's not right. We need to be corrected. We need God to come. We need to say, God, come. And if there's any false understanding in me, remove it. If I am indoctrinated in any way, let me be always open to hear correction on theological issues. So important, especially in this day when so many church leaders are running to and fro, saying anything, and you can't correct them. Let's go to some examples. As I mentioned already, in 2 Samuel, starting in the 11th chapter, we're not going to read it. I'm going to assume that most of us know it. If not, if you need to know these stories, I will give you the text and you can study them out yourself. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, a horrible, for me, out of all the chapters, and there's over 1,100 chapters in the scripture, to me, that is just, I I get to it, I have to read as fast as I can through David's life. It's when the, the... he falls into an adulterous affair and uh, has a child with this woman, Bathsheba, and he kills the husband to try to cover up his sin. And it's it just, it just horrible, absolutely horrible. And David, for a year, does not repent. He's become cold, he's become indifferent to God, and he needs to be corrected. And God raises up, not raises up, but Nathan the prophet obeys the voice of God, and he goes to David. David does repent. This is a formal correction. It's dealing with blatant sin. As a pastor, even as Christians, we're called to go into people's lives and say, brother, you know, you're taking the body and the blood. You're a confessed believer in Christ, but there's sin in your life. This is not taking the speck out of your brother's eye and not dealing with the log in your own eyes. There's nothing to do with it. Paul says we judge no man outside the church. We judge those inside the church. Dealing with blatant sin. And this is not just a call to receive correction. Because sometimes young believers really might not realize they're living in sin. They might not realize drunkenness is sin. And you have to speak to them about drunkenness. Or speaking about cursing. Like you, you tell them you're a believer, but you're cussing constantly. You, you know, you're saved now. 
16 years. <laughs> Just a joke. There are certain things that are blatant. There are certain things that are more clear. But not everything is. When it comes to dealing with inner pride, it's very difficult. Dealing with uh, personalities is very dealing. God wants to deal with these things. And I, and I spoke about it already. Peter's promise of being faithfulness uh, to Jesus, where everybody else was going to deny him. He really thought he had the upper hand. Peter had no idea how much fear of man he had within him. And when crunch time came and the perfect storm came in his life, he denied Christ three times. And he was rebuked by a rooster. Not the slave girl. The slave girl looked him right in the eye and said, you too are a Galilean. And the third time he started swearing and cussing, I am not, I do not know this man. But when the rooster crowed, he remembered what Jesus said. He says he wept bitterly. He was rebuked by the bird. And I say that because you never know when a rebuke, a correction in our life is going to come. You never know who's going to come through. You just never know. We have to be open to realize that there's parts of us that really think, I'll never deny Christ. Everybody else might. Or there's parts of us that really think we're beyond certain sin. And we're beyond certain uh, uh, characteristics. And Jesus knows what runs deep in our heart. And how... Important is for a Christian to really cultivate and develop to, re to, to realize that we need to be open to God's correction at any time, any circumstance, through any person and any agent. No matter how painful it is, that even if it makes us weep bitterly in pain, to realize this is the voice of God. There are there times in my life I look back and and the guy was telling me something one day in his gym, and I wanted to punch him right in the face. <laughs> he says, you know, you're lazy. And I said, that's God. Because he was right. I was being lazy. And he looked right at me. And I wanted to get defensive. And I had to look at him and I said, I appreciate that very much. God used it. God used them because God was correcting me on something in that line already. But the heart is slow to learn. So I had to receive the correction and I'm still receiving that correction. Uh, I still haven't mastered it. But God is good, isn't he? And I think about the time that Peter was in Antioch. Now understand something about Peter. God has been trying to get Peter's attention for a long time about the fear of man. Peter had the fear of man. It's not good for a man to have a fear of man. As a matter of fact, Proverbs says that the fear of man is what? It's a snare. It's a trap. <clears throat> Never mind a leader of any sort to have a fear of man. But Peter had the deep fear of man. And when he was up in Antioch, in Antioch, if you're not familiar with what's going on over there, it's one of the great revivals of the New Testament. It's where the Jew and the Gentile came together and they worshipped God as one new creation. There, there, was no, there was no dividing line. They, they were in love with Christ. Jew and Gentile. And Paul was the teacher, and Barnabas was the teacher, and Peter came, and he was enjoying this work of grace. Until certain men came from Jerusalem, 
And he showed himself aloof. Instead of eating with the Gentiles as he was previously doing and most likely enjoying their company, because they were filled with the Spirit and filled with praise for Jehovah, they loved Jesus, so surely any Christian would enjoy that. But when certain men came, he showed himself aloof and he hid himself. And Paul openly rebuked him. And Paul says, in front of all, I told Peter. Paul gave him a peace of mind in a loving way. That this is not what the gospel is about. The gospel is a gospel of grace. Jews have nothing against the gen- over the Gentile. The Gentiles are inferior in God's uh, providence now. They're both the same. Uh, we don't find out exactly what Peter said at that time, but we find out in Second Peter that he actually speaks very highly of Paul. He received the correction. He received the rebuke. But think how painful it was. From the moment of the rooster... To Antioch is probably about 20 years. Maybe a little less. But it's in that, we're talking years. Think about how Peter felt when he had to be corrected over this again. There's a word I wrote here that's called humiliation. Because there are times that God really has to get into our heart and he'll use humiliation to do it. Because sometimes you sit there and you're like, raw. You're like, you, you can't go anywhere. You look to the left, you're wrong there. You look to the right, you're wrong there. You can't run behind you. You can't, You're just raw. You're like, a duh. You got the big question mark over your head. I'm a moron. <laughs> That's how I was in the gym that day when a guy said, you know, you're lazy. I was like, a duh. You're right. I didn't tell him that. I said, thank you very much. But are we open to receive correction from any person at any time through any circumstance and to really say, is God speaking to me? You know what's healthy about what I just said? It's very healthy. Because it removes any sense of, for a Christian, uh, low self-esteem or I'm not thinking good of myself and I have this negative appeal, thought about myself. What it is, I, it's, I'm not... Re- I'm reflecting it back to God. God, are you speaking to me about me? It's not, I'm at this point, I'm not concerned what people think about me. I said, God, what are you doing? Are you changing something in me? Are you revealing something? Is, is this your loving voice behind this scathing rebuke? It's kind of healthy. Luke 9, 51, 56 teaches us of something. It speaks of that time when John and his brother are going to Jerusalem with Jesus. And Jesus told them, go into the city of Samaria and tell them to prepare prepare a place for me. And uh, they didn't like what they heard. Jesus was going to Jerusalem. He wasn't going to camp out in Samaria and preach to them. So they said no. They denied Jesus any access to their town to go to Jerusalem. John didn't like it. He wanted to act like Elijah of the Old Testament and call down fire. Sons of thunder, Jesus called John and James. And Jesus kind of looked at him and says, you don't know what spirit you are of. Do you know, and it actually says Jesus rebuked them. I'm not reading the scripture to save time. But Jesus rebuked them. And we know the rebuke received because if you read John's gospel, nobody spoke about love more than John the apostle. At all. 
He's the apostle of love. Many will write and many uh, scholars will talk to him as the apostle of love. No one spoke about love more than John. And it's interesting because if you go into the 8th chapter of Acts, guess what Jesus did? He sent Philip the evangelist back to Samaria with signs and wonders and they received the message of salvation. And guess what? John and Peter went down to lay hands on him to receive the gift of the Spirit. Peter and John would have made horrible apostles if they didn't receive correction. Parents would make horrible parents if they didn't receive correction. Pastors would be miserable failures if we didn't receive correction to know what spirit we are of. We're dealing with sinners. We're dealing with broken people. We've got to deal with kindness and compassion and understanding. Not with judgmental and self-righteous spirit. Can't do it. God has to heal us to be ministers of grace. You've got to be healed by grace. I can go on. I have some closing remarks. Remember, today's teaching is to follow up on last week, that God's always correcting us. Every day you wake up, it's God's classroom. That's it. You can look in the mirror and say, hello, God's classroom. What are you teaching me today, God? Now, the day older, yeah, this is not good. You can teach me something better than this. But what is God teaching about ourselves? Every day we wake up, God is revealing something about himself and ourselves. And you never know when he's going to give us a test. These scriptures we use find themselves in the genre of the Bible called wisdom literature. Very important for us to know. Wisdom literature was the foundation for life. Everyday, ordinary life for the nation of Israel to work out what we call today our salvation with fear and tremble. Today we call it work out your salvation with fear and tremble. We'll call be living sacrifices to God. We'll call love the Lord God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. But in the Old Testament, it was the fear of the Lord. This was the fear of the Lord. The word in Hebrew actually means masterful or skillful living. One scholar says this, the possession of wisdom enables humans to cope with this Another one says, the goal of wisdom was to formulate character and to make sense from life's anomalies. To have an understanding. You read this wonderful book and you say, my goodness, now I understand. I can see myself, I can see others, I can see humanity in this book. Correction in our life falls within these definitions and are needed to Live life that God wants. To live life and to express our fear of the Lord. To express our living sacrifices. It's easier today for us because what happens at salvation is that God gives us love. He really does. We love him because he first loved us. I don't love God because I read the book of Proverbs. I read the book of Proverbs because I love God. There's a natural overflow in the New Testament that the Old Testament saints didn't have. Being filled with the Spirit. There's a natural inclination in our lives to follow the way of Christ. 
teaching comes and supports that which the Holy Spirit is giving us, being led by the Spirit, not by the law. When I read Proverbs, I'm going, that's what God wants to produce in my life. Any teaching in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit's way ahead of the Old Testament in your heart. Again, the Holy Spirit's way ahead of you, way ahead of, of the Old Testament in your heart. There are many have no understanding of what the Old Testament says, but yet they live greatly for Christ. Solely on the work of the Holy Spirit. Solely on the work of the Holy Spirit. God wants us to have a character, as Proverbs says, that's slow to anger. To understand that a gentle word turns away wrath. That the prudent see evil coming and flee. This is what it means to be part of the fear of the Lord. And the beginning of wisdom is to acquire it. As we read it, yes, it's to search it out and it's more profitable than anything else. More beautiful than silver, gold, or fine jewelry. It gives us long life and happiness as God defines long life and happiness. The world defines long life and happiness quite different than what the Bible says is long life and happiness. Proverbs protects I should say correction protects. Correction teaches and guides us through life's uncertainties. Correction in life protects our marriages. It protects our friendships. It alleviates tensions. It protects and promotes long, healthy friendships. It protects sexual purity. I'll be speaking about that probably next week out of Proverbs 6. If your parents get ready when you come next week. It protects sexual purity. It protects against financial ruin. It protects our children. Correction protects our health. It protects our futures. It protects our good name, our reputation, and our honor. Being corrected at a young age as a parent is speaking to a daughter, a parent is speaking to their son. Listen to the voice of God. Wrap it around your neck. Wear it in your heart. It will protect your sexual purity. It will protect your honor. It will protect your good name. Think about what I just said. And that was taught in every school. To every child. Every day. I doubt very much that you would see children killing one another as you do today. Please come next week as I speak about these things. This is all found within the wisdom and grace of correction. Can I dig a little deep before I close? Okay. How is our reputation in these areas? How's our reputation in sexual purity? What are people saying about us? What are people saying about our reputation financially? our health, our futures. Can we sit there and listen to what people have to say about us and their opinions? Where do we stand? Is that a harsh question? How about our friendships? Where are we in our life with friendships? Have I burned more friendships than I have today? 
And I look back over my life and say, man, I've, I've lost a lot of friends. Can I look at my life and say, you know something? I still got friends I go back to grammar school with. Something's more important. Because that's a painful question. Where is Jesus in all this? <laughs> that's an important question. Where is Jesus in all this? It's important for us to know because ultimately Christ is our wisdom. Paul says that more than once. That Christ is our wisdom. Christ is our justification. Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our sanctification. Christ is our all in all. He's the power of wisdom. Christ is the power of wisdom. Christ is the reason for wisdom. Christ is the desire for wisdom. It's the cry of wisdom in our heart. I cannot love Christ and not desire purity, honor, reputation, a good name. Christ incites this within our heart to seek wisdom, to be a living sacrifice, to be a God-fearing man, to be a God-fearing woman, to be a God-fearing parent. See, when Paul says that Christ is our wisdom, see, that's the major correction of life. You can miss it in every other area of life than we have. We missed it financially. We missed it in our health. We missed it in sex. We missed it in our friendships. We missed it in our siblings. But when it came to that day when we heard we're sinners and we need to be saved, we did not miss it. That is ultimate wisdom. Christ accepts us with every failure. Christ is the major correction. All other corrections that we spoke about today naturally flow out of a life of sanctification. It's part of God's relationship to us now. We can rest assured that behind all correction, no matter how painful it is, is our good God, producing only good, only good results in our life and for the life of the people around us. Understand something. I'll close with this. I don't know where you would be, but after being saved 24 years, if I didn't have Christ in my life, I'd be a ruined, rotten human individual. And why we change, even if it's slowly, over many years, is because Christ is our wisdom and he's our sanctification. The only reason we have good in our life at all is because of grace. And as I just read the other day, someone sent me something, I'll paraphrase, but the reason we love the truth so much is because of grace. If we didn't, we would love sin and error just as much. Christ has separated us from that. So please understand something. When we go through the book of Proverbs, it has a place in the Old Testament. And it's not the same as the place in the New Testament at all. When the children of the Old Testament came to Proverbs, they came as a people delivered from Egypt and under the covenant of Moses. In the New Testament, we come to the book of Proverbs delivered in Christ. He's our motivation. He's our sanctification. He's our justification. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord God.
We thank you that correction, constructive criticism from friends, family, even enemies, Father God, even strangers, God, are meant to produce Christ-like nature in us, Father God. So God, let us always be open and honest. Let us always have true evaluations of what people are saying at any time, in any circumstance, that it could be the voice of you correcting a blind spot in our life, Father God. Thank you for the grace of correction that changes and transforms me into the image of my Savior.